Welcome to K-Pop Bookshelf. This podcast is where we will be exploring Korean popular culture through books. I'm the host of this podcast, Nina, and I can't wait to talk about books with you. The book that we are taking down from the bookshelf today is Palimpsest, Documents from a Korean Adoption by Lisa Ulim Hoblum. According to the About the Author blurb in the book, quote, Lisa Ulim Hoblum is an illustrator, cartoonist, and graphic designer living in Auckland, New Zealand with her partner and two children, end quote. The blurb goes on to say that, quote, Palimpsest is her first graphic novel. She's an adoptee rights activist, end quote. Lisa is an adoptee from Korea who was raised in Sweden. This is our third episode in our Adoption from Korea season. You should definitely check out our other episodes from this season that have come out so far, but in case you didn't have a chance to do that yet, let me just make a special note here. I, Nina, am not someone who either was adopted or who adopted anyone, and I don't have close relatives or friends who were adopted either. But adoption is a major part of the history of Korea, and that's why we are focused on this topic for this season. Adoption is often not just a simple story of happiness or even a simple story of tragedy. There are many concepts that this book and therefore this episode will touch on, You may be sensitive to the various topics discussed here, so please take care when listening. Also, I will say up front that the author of this book is not one to mince words or hide her emotions, and I personally see that as an overall good thing. She is critical of some adoption practices, especially those involving her own adoption. For those who have adoptees in their lives or are themselves an adoptee, but maybe you don't relate to Lisa's experiences, You may find some of the information in the book difficult to deal with, or you may completely disagree with some of her viewpoints. And if that's the case for you, then maybe this episode isn't for you either. Please note that the language and terms about adoption that I will be using in this episode is the language used by the author of the book or ones used in articles that I quote. All of the articles that I quote will be listed in the show notes. The unusual thing about this book, Palimpsest, is that, as we said earlier, it's a graphic novel, and this is the first time I have covered a graphic novel on the podcast. The book is illustrated in kind of a sepia tone, which is really beautiful, and the drawings are so easy to look at, and they really help convey Lisa's story so well. This episode will include some spoilers about the book, but despite this, please do make sure to go out and get this book if you can, or at least check it out from the library. We will be spending relatively little time on the author's story and talk a lot about the Korean intercountry adoption process as a whole. And also, you won't get to see the lovely illustrations if you don't get your hands on the book. If you yourself are not an adoptee, what do you think of when you think of an orphan baby who is available for adoption? Maybe you think of some kind of tragic story where both parents died, maybe in some shocking accident. Or maybe you think of a baby who was abandoned and left alone somewhere on the front steps of a church or at a fire station with parents who are untraceable. The baby's guardians, caregivers, next of kin just vanished in thin air the moment the baby was left at a refuge or orphanage. As that child grows up and begins to understand their origins, what types of feelings may they have? The author and illustrator of the book, Lisa Ulim Hoblum, begins the book by defining the title, which is the word palimpsest. The definition in the book is, quote, a very old text or document in which writing has been removed and covered or replaced by new writing, end quote. I also want to point out the subtitle of the book, Documents from a Korean Adoption. 
pay close attention to that because documents are a really important part of this story. So as I mentioned, Lisa was born in Korea and adopted to a Swedish family in Sweden. She was born in the 1970s, a time in which records were not existing on a cloud. They could not so easily be retrieved electronically. Lisa does not include a great deal of information about her adoptive Swedish family in the book. From what we do know, she appears to have what I can only imagine was a pretty average upbringing in Sweden at the time. She does not disclose any particular issues or grievances with her adoptive parents. She thanks them at the end of the book. She also has an adopted brother who was also adopted from Korea. She mentions that the stories that she heard about her adoption growing up were somewhat couched in these cliche phrases like, well, what matters is that you're here now. And she mentions that she started to feel a little bit like her biological family was slowly being completely erased, and that her family essentially acted as though her life really only began once she arrived home to them in Sweden. It doesn't seem at all like her adoptive parents said those things with any kind of malintent or that she took it that way, but still, the impression that her family wanted her to focus on her current life rather than her life back in Korea was something that Lisa clocked, even as a child. To describe her state of mind at the time, I will read a quote from the book. Lisa says, quote, To me, being adopted didn't mean I was chosen, like others wanted me to believe. It meant I was rejected, end quote. Again, these are her personal feelings. You or adoptees you may know may not actually feel this way at all, but this was her personal experience and emotions as a child. As a Korean child living somewhere in Sweden in the 1990s, Lisa experienced some racism from other kids. By the time she was in high school, the negative treatment she faced was so bad that she dropped out of school due to bullying and continued her studies at home. Books or films about adoption, Lisa felt, were often from the perspective of or centered on adoptive parents, and therefore they left much to be desired because they didn't express how she felt as an adoptee. Lisa writes, quote, being chosen for adoption is actually dependent on fulfilling the right criteria, that we are cute enough and that we have been picked out by a social worker, end quote. This comment really reminded me of the previous episode of our adoption season, which focused on the book From Orphan to Adoptee by Sujin Pate. In that book, we learned a lot about how Korean orphanages and adoption agencies used to classify children and prepare them to be quote-unquote desirable for adoption. During her childhood in Sweden, Lisa did have a best friend who was also a Korean adoptee as well as a Korean pen pal with whom she exchanged correspondences. And of course, she had her older Korean brother. But outside of this, she had very limited exposure to Korean people or culture while growing up in Sweden. In the mid-1990s, when Lisa and her parents first began their inquiries into finding out more about her birth family, she was told that locating the Korean records would be very difficult. In Korea, there is an identification number called the South Korean Resident Registration Number, which is assigned to Korean residents. We can consider it kind of like the social security number used here in the U.S. For some time, it was not a requirement for adoption agencies in South Korea to record the national ID number of a child's birth parents. Indeed, the task of finding the family of a Korean adoptee was somewhat arduous in the mid-90s, is the analog method, you know? So using the address provided in the adoption files, agency workers could begin to search for birth family by going to these local offices. Every block in Korea had a neighborhood office called the Dong office, where agencies could check to see whether there was any information about the birth parents or other family members there. 
and if no records existed there, they could next try the Gu office, which was a city district office containing registrars of residents who had lived there. However, sometimes the addresses within the adoption records were false. Sometimes they were not even an actual address that ever existed. If an adoption file did include a social security number, Lisa was told, sometimes that number was actually fake. After the initial search in the mid-90s did not turn up many results, Lisa didn't start searching for her birth family again until after the delivery of her second child. In fact, in many accounts of adoptees that I've read or heard, many begin searching when they start to have a biological family of their own. In Lisa's case, she felt called to start this search because she felt something like her mom possessing her body, as she puts it, during childbirth. For her search, Lisa was able to use her adoptive parents' adoption paperwork that was already in the home. Some of this paperwork involved invoices and receipts, as well as some other administrative paperwork, which made Lisa think of the adoption as somewhat transactional. As Lisa and her partner Richie reviewed the adoption paperwork, they found some records with conflicting information. One piece of paper stated Lisa's date of birth and provided the names of both of her biological parents. But another document stated that she had a quote-unquote presumptive birth date and no known parents. The papers Lisa was looking at were something called a hojok. A hojok in Korea is a family register, and the hojok is completed with family information including head of household and other biographical information. But orphans in South Korea received what was called an orphan hojok. According to a Korea Times article, which is linked in my show notes, quote, almost all Korean adoptees were given a so-called orphan hojok until 2012, a one-person document which lists the orphan as the head of her or his own family and contains only the name of the child and birth date, plus the address of the Korean adoption agency. The orphan hojok does not contain the birth parents' names or any biographical information, end quote. As discussed in the previous episode of the adoption season, the one about the book From Orphan to Adoptee by Sujin Pate, being an orphan in South Korea was more like a legal status rather than an actual state of being. So in other words, you could have one or even both of your parents be alive and still be declared an orphan legally by the government of South Korea. As an official legal orphan, you could then become much more easily adopted out to families in other countries. The point of Lisa's story is that she was one such legal orphan. She had known parents, but through paperwork, including her orphan Hojok, she was legally considered an orphan. And what's more, some of her paperwork was actually falsified to further assert her orphan status. Lisa was shocked to hear this information, and she referred to this type of situation as being a paper orphan. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, or CBC, wrote a very interesting article with some accompanying video about paper orphans. This article was referenced and linked in my previous episode, but we're going to look into it further here. The article states, quote, CBC News spoke to more than 20 adoptees in Canada and around the world who questioned the accuracy of their adoption paperwork from South Korea. Like Faustin's, this is another Korean adoptee interviewed by the CBC, Korean-Canadian adoptee Kelly Faustin. Many of the records state the children were found abandoned and they omit key details of family history. While they were all given certificates designating them legal orphans, some are learning they may in fact have been stolen from their biological parents. Others discover their parents were still alive and searching for them, end quote. The Korea Times article I mentioned previously states that, quote, the truth is that children were legally orphaned for the purpose of transnational adoption through the official government processes of the state of origin, Korea, 
and the Western adoptive countries, primarily the U.S., Australia, and West European countries, end quote. The same Korea Times article goes on to state, quote, in short, the state has deliberately and systematically hidden and erased the real identities of children. As a direct consequence for all Korean adoptees, it is fundamentally impossible to know their real origin through the official document, which was provided by both the Korean and Western governments when they were born and subsequently moved across borders. Consequently, so many adoptees have to undergo a harsh and often futile birth family search process by relying on the unofficial and presumably private documents kept under lock and key inside the adoption agencies or alternately through DNA testing. Only with great effort and sparse luck are adoptees ever able to trace their true origins, end quote. Okay, so let's take a minute to digest everything we just heard. Basically, these articles and Lisa are saying that for-profit Korean adoption agencies and the government were basically doing whatever they could to adopt babies and children out of Korea and to parents living abroad. And the way that they did this was by lying and falsifying records, and they did it knowingly. And it took me so long to fully grasp this. I have been reading and listening to so many Korean adoption stories looking for something that I might have missed because to my mind, there is no way that this level of lying, unscrupulousness, and blatant disregard for people's lives was going on. But I finally had to accept this truth. People were knowingly, willingly lying on official government documents in order to essentially sell babies and kids to adoptive parents. Because we talked about in the previous episode how things like giving kids plastic surgery to make them more desirable and therefore marketing them to prospective adoptive parents went on, and now we're hearing about falsified documents to make prospective adoptive parents think that these children had no record of any history or living family or any kind of identity at all, I just feel like my mind is kind of blown right now. And let's not forget about the proxy adoptions that was going on in the 1950s by the Holt Adoption Program. And that was again where kids were just being shipped out en masse to parents who were not properly vetted or who had the chance to acquaint themselves with their children prior to finalizing the adoption. And that was because either Mr. Holt or some other representative of those parents could be the ones to go to Korea and do whatever necessary paperwork and administrative actions that needed to be taken in order to adopt their kids. And I just find that to be kind of a troubling situation, to say the least. I'm also thinking of the claim in Sujin Pate's book From Orphan to Adoptee that said that one of the major contributors to Korea's economic growth in the 20th century wasn't just industrialization, but actually inter-country adoption. And the information that we discover throughout reading this book and that CBC article and other articles like it is that this claim that adoption was kind of its own economic boom industry, that claim is so much more clear to understand now after reading all this. So this concept of having falsified documents and discrepant information seems to be shockingly common among Korean adoptees who've gone searching for information about their biological families. But why falsify documents? So according to the CBC article, quote, in 1961, the U.S. stipulated orphan as an immigration qualification to allow U.S. citizens to bring children into the country for adoption. Its definition of an eligible orphan, however, was broad. It included death or disappearance of both or one parent, abandonment, even cases where a parent was, quote unquote, incapable of providing care, end quote. 
The article also says, quote, South Korea created a law called the Orphan Adoption Special Procedure Act, establishing the system to adopt out Korean children to foreigners. Canada, as well as European nations, created similar legislation in the years after. Records show that the first Korean orphans, and orphans is in quote there, arrived in Canada in 1968, though there are indications that others may have come earlier through unofficial pathways. CBC found the federal government actually held on to templates of legal paperwork required to bring Korean children to Canada, the very documents now being questioned by adoptees and adoption advocates, end quote. Some adoptees who have compared their adoption paperwork to each other have noted almost identical-looking verbiage in their paperwork, which seems to show that this was a systemic and intentional issue that was pretty widespread in South Korea at the time. Again, in these specific sorts of adoptions where records were falsified to make it easier to to adopt out children to other countries, the family, next of kin, extended relatives were actually fairly easy to locate and sometimes fully known to adoption agency staff. They just either simply did not look for them when adult adoptees showed up asking questions or they never decided to place the child with any of those individuals in favor of instead adopting these kids out abroad. And another weird thing to me about this is the fact that in most cases, documents, written documents containing the true details of the biological family did exist somewhere within the adoption agency or orphanage. And some of these places still have these documents, but staff working at these establishments just bent over backwards to work to alter and conceal records. And even when adoptees themselves showed up as adults to the facility in South Korea and faced the current staff there, they would often just be lied to, to their faces. The CBC investigation even confirmed at least one case in which a child was fully kidnapped in order to be declared an orphan and adopted out to Canada. It's so chilling to hear about these practices because, let's say hypothetically, you're a small child who gets lost at a mall or amusement park or some busy area, and you're separated from your family or whichever adult you're with, And somehow authorities find you, but rather than do an appropriate and thorough search for your home and your caregivers, they just instead put you in an orphanage where workers ready you for adoption to an entirely different continent. Like, it seems like this was kind of what was going on here in some situations, at least. So with all this in mind, let's go back to the story of Lisa Ulim Hoblum, the author of this book, Palimpsest. Lisa finds out that she was one of the adoptees who was made a paper orphan and possibly illegally adopted outside of Korea into Sweden. Throughout her research of cases like hers, Lisa discovers that not only was paperwork falsified, but in some cases, biological parents were tricked into giving up their children. Some children, like we mentioned, were kidnapped and brought back to the orphanage. We discussed this somewhat in our previous episode, but I'm not sure if those of us living in Western countries in present day can fully grasp the stigma that came with being a single mother in South Korea in the mid to late 20th century. Like, even if your children were born within wedlock and you had gotten a divorce, let's say, the social stigma surrounding single motherhood in Korea was so extreme that other relatives of yours would try to put your child up for adoption. In some cases, in-laws or the biological grandparents would take a child to an orphanage and arrange their adoption without the knowledge of either of the birth parents. This sounds incredible to modern ears in cultures where the stigma of single parenthood is not so great as it once was. Anyways, now Lisa is, like I said, searching for more information and she starts to share this with her family and friends, that just this fact that she's on a quest to discover more information about her biological family and her Korean roots. But not everyone in Lisa's life thinks it's such a great endeavor. 
Lisa writes, quote, it annoys me that people impose guilt on me for asking questions about my roots, end quote. She starts to feel like she is running out of time since as more time passes, the higher the likelihood that establishments that existed and were involved in her adoption have since closed or that people who could shed light on the circumstances surrounding her adoption have died and maybe her biological parents and relatives themselves have actually passed away too. She doesn't know. There's also this feeling of her possibly never finding out any information about her birth family. She notes a statistic that less than 3% of Korean adoptees who visit Korea to find out more about their origins ever end up reuniting with their biological families. One person Lisa is so lucky to have in her life is her partner, Richie. Richie is so supportive in her search and he helps to write correspondences with Korean institutions on her behalf after Lisa starts to get the sense that the adoption services are giving her the runaround and being invasive with her questions. Another person Lisa is super lucky to have in her life is her friend Min Jong, an immigrant to Sweden from Korea. Min Jong works on translating documents for Lisa and she even goes to Korea when Lisa, Richie, and their two children take an extended trip out there to find out more information about Lisa's biological family. Throughout the course of her search, Lisa discovers that it was her grandmother who took Lisa to the orphanage. I don't want to give too much about the book away, but eventually Korean authorities do locate a biological relative of Lisa's, who she is able to speak to over the phone with the help of Min Jong. Lisa finally gets to personally ask her family members some of her questions, and although the conversation is relatively short, what ends up happening is that even more discrepancies crop up. So for example, it's discovered that Lisa's biological mom was actually a few years older at the time of Lisa's birth than what the records that named her mother showed. And also her records showed that her parents had been in a relationship and had mutually decided to give her up for adoption. However, Lisa finds out that her biological father did not even know that Lisa existed. So although Lisa finally achieves her dream of connecting with one of her biological relatives, there are still very complicated emotions for her. She writes, quote, I know I should be very happy, but the distance between us makes me feel a strange emptiness, end quote. And Lisa ends up learning some difficult truths about her biological family, and not to mention the fact that there's like a language barrier, a cultural barrier. So there's just sort of all these kind of mental blocks and actual blocks to getting close to her biological family. Also, one mysterious figure who keeps popping up in her adoption files is someone named Mr. Jung. We know Mr. Jung does actually exist because there's a photo of Mr. Jung with Lisa's Swedish parents and brother prior to her adoption. Mr. Jung worked on the adoption of Lisa's brother, who's also, like I said, adopted from Korea. And the photo was taken when Mr. Jung visited Sweden. So in much of the book, she's looking for this Mr. Jung and no one can seem to find him. A lot of the adoption service staff that Lisa works with in Korea and meets are not very helpful, but some do make more of an effort than others. Lisa believes that Mr. Jung would likely have the clearest understanding of the circumstances of her adoption, as he was the one most directly involved in it. After much effort, he is finally located, and Lisa writes, quote, Mr. Jung admitted that the institution from which Lisa was adopted had sold, quote-unquote, found children for adoption. They received, quote-unquote, donations, which were actually bribes from the adoptive parents, end quote. As you might imagine, the varying emotions that Lisa feels being in her birth country, meeting with her biological family members, hearing about people who worked on her adoption, made Lisa feel these varying intense emotions. She writes, quote, I can't help thinking that taboo thought that a life in an orphanage in my own country wouldn't have been worse than a life in a foreign one. The lives of these children are used as examples of why an orphanage isn't a home. 
But who decides that? Who decided that it's better for a child to lose everything, including their name, and be sent to the other side of the earth with their past erased? End quote. Her biological relative is also filled with complicated emotions. At times, her relative gets agitated with Lisa's quest to dig up more information and wants Lisa to stop looking for more. Due to the emotional distress all of this has brought on, Lisa's biological relative decides to formally cut off contact with Lisa. And just like that, Lisa is once again separated from her biological family. So now that we've heard Lisa's story, I wanted to talk more about the various players in stories like these, the first one being South Korean government. An Associated Press article really summarizes situations like Lisa saying, quote, During that time, the country was ruled by a succession of military leaders who saw adoptions as a way to deepen ties with the democratic West, while reducing the number of mouths to feed and removing the socially undesirable. Those procured for adoptions during the 1970s and 80s were mostly children of poor families who ended up in orphanages and those of unwed mothers pressured into relinquishing their newborns at hospitals. South Korea's special adoption law allowed profit-driven agencies to manipulate records and bypass proper child relinquishment, end quote. Many adoptees and adoptee advocates think that the Korean government did not provide enough oversight over the adoption agencies that sent so many children overseas. A Guardian article quotes the former director of Holt's Children's Hospital, Holt Adoption Services, Children's Hospital, Dr. Byung-guk Cho. Quote, we call them angry adoptees, says Dr. Byung-guk Cho, referring to the adoptees who are now voicing objections. What we can tell them is that we sent them abroad to protect their lives so they could be fed, so they could get an education, end quote. Dr. Cho goes on to say, quote, from our perspective, our question is why the parents didn't come looking for their children. In all the years I was at the children's hospital, only one time did a parent come looking for their child. If a parent reported a missing child, the police would surely have helped them find their way to them, end quote. Okay, so I was thinking about what Dr. Cho says here, and I understand that adoption workers were doing what they thought was best in most cases, and I don't think we can point to any one entity or person as like a villain character here, but... After hearing the stories of so many Korean adoptees, I don't think wondering why their parents or caregivers didn't come looking for them is the right question to ask, with all due respect to Dr. Cho. We know from Lisa's story that her grandmother was the one who arranged her adoption, and Lisa's mother maybe didn't know or possibly wasn't told the details of the arrangement that was made at the time. And so it's possible that her mother could not have gone to look for her if she had wanted to. And also sometimes children were transferred to other orphanages or foster families before being placed with their ultimate adoptive families. Sometimes by the time a biological parent tracked their child down, the child had already been sent abroad. Also, we learned that her biological father didn't even know she existed. So like, how could he or anyone in his family go looking for Lisa? Also, we talked about the stigma of being a single mother. I don't think like someone who's facing all this pressure from their family and from their adults and elders in their life to not like advertise the fact that they were a single parent was going to file a police report and like a formal complaint or formal like inquiry about their missing child. So I just think there's like so many other factors and nuances here that you can't just simply be like, well, how come no one came looking for them? You know, in my opinion, anyway. And anyway, whether or not biological family members came looking for their children, it does not negate the wrongdoing. In my opinion, this is wrongdoing that some people had a hand in, such as falsifying orphanage records in the first place and lying to adult adoptees. But this was not all Korea's doing alone. 
the governments of the receiving countries seemed to have at least some awareness of what was happening also. And don't the governments of countries receiving Korean adoptees also bear some responsibility for ensuring that children who are sent there as adoptees were not sent under false pretenses? The CBC article says, quote, the Canadian government was playing catch up in response to growing demand after the Second World War from Canadians who wished to save children from war-torn nations, says historian Tara Brookfield, end quote. If you remember in my previous episode, we talked about how U.S. soldiers stationed in Korea writing letters home, as well as journalists and charities and religious organizations publicized the plight of the Korean orphans to the general American public. And they were often trying to build up these feelings of sympathy from Americans and getting them to want to be saviors for these children so that they would either at least donate money or adopt the children outright. As a result of the desire to save these children, some prospective adoptive parents turned to private adoption agencies in order to adopt. The CBC article includes the following quote, The placement of unwanted children is done by many individuals, including doctors, midwives, nurses, friends, relatives, private entrepreneurs, and agencies, reads an archived report on Korean adoptions from the 1970s. With no legal controls, the buying and selling of children is a lucrative source of income, end quote. Other countries that took in Korean adoptees have investigated the adoption processes from South Korean adoptions. In 2021, the government of the Netherlands investigated South Korean adoptions to their country and noted that, quote, adoptions from South Korea and other origin states involved major human rights infringements of children and their birth parents, end quote. In the case of the Netherlands, Dutch News reported that, quote, the Ministry of Justice and Security violated the Archive Act when destroying thousands of adoption files in 1983 and 1999. The Government Information Heritage Inspectorate concluded. It investigated the matter at the request of adoptees and parliamentary questions, NOS reports. End quote. The article quotes a Korean Dutch adoptee, Stephanie Dong Hee Kim, who said, quote, It is especially sad for those who have nothing, who have been desperately searching for decades, she said, or who were abused by their adoptive parents. Those adoptees want to know how did my adoptive parents get permission to adopt? End quote. I mentioned that I am not an adoptive parent, but I think that if I were to adopt a child, I would be very troubled by the notion that the child I adopted may have been illegally adopted out to me. And that is not to put blame on adoptive parents who were lied to or presented with misinformation when they thought they were going through the proper channels in order to adopt. The CBC article Paper Orphans interviewed the adoptive father of Korean-Canadian adoptee Kelly Faustin. Quote, Kelly Faustin's adoptive father, Jim, says he only found out recently through his daughter about the inconsistencies in her adoption paperwork. He says that had he known in the 70s about the allegations of falsification of adoption documents by Korean agencies, he might have been in a position to help bring it to light. After all, he was working for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, end quote. Later in the article, Kelly Faustin's father states that no other adoptive parents that he knew in Canada had any idea that their adopted Korean children may have been illegally adopted to them. Kelly Faustin herself is now an adoptee advocate and is calling on the Canadian government to investigate the circumstances of adoptions like hers. As the number of Korean intercountry adoptees finding out the truth behind their adoptions grow, the Korean government is finally going to do something about this injustice. An Associated Press article from December 2022 states, quote, South Korea's Truth and Reconciliation Commission will investigate the cases of dozens of South Korean adoptees in Europe and the United States who suspect their origins were falsified or obscured during a child's export frenzy in the mid to late 1900s, end quote. The article also says, quote, the commission decided to investigate 34 adoptees who were sent to Denmark, Norway, the Netherlands, Germany, Belgium, and the United States from the 1960s to the early 1990s. 
The adoptees say they were wrongfully removed from their families through falsified documents and corrupt practices, end quote. Another quote from this article states, quote, some of the adoptees say they discovered that the agencies had switched their identities to replace other children who died or got too sick to travel, which often made it impossible to trace their roots. The adoptees called for the commission to broadly investigate agencies for records falsification and manipulation and for allegedly proceeding with adoptions without the proper consent of birth parents, end quote. Okay, so just to explain that a little bit, sometimes children in the orphanage would be lined up to be adopted out to parents abroad, but that child was either too sickly and died or just too sickly to get to the other country in a safe and healthy manner. So they would just swap out the kid and they would falsify their records and give that kid another name, like the the original kid's name. And the families who were, you know, not actually in South Korea would have no idea that this was actually not the child they were meant to adopt. I mean, all of this is so like devastating to me. I can't imagine what being adopted is like in the first place. And then to have all these additional questions on top of it, when you find out your records were faked in order to get you adopted out of the country so that someone can make money or that someone can feel like they're protecting the social status of their child. I mean, to me, it's like, it's not okay. Even if one's life as an adoptee is amazing, it doesn't mean that all of this is fine and doesn't matter. Some of the cases being investigated by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are of adoptees who are adopted through the Holt Adoption Program, which is an organization we discussed in my previous episode. An article from this year states, quote, Holt Children's Services stated that the allegations were, quote, not all based on facts and that it would engage in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's investigation in good faith. Another adoption agency, Korea Social Services, responded, it is difficult to give an answer on this matter, end quote. Now that we've heard a bit about Lisa Ulim Hoblum's story, let's hear a little bit from other adoptees who experienced something similar to her. A Korean adoptee named Kim Thompson is quoted in a Han Kyore article as saying, quote, To this day, Holt continues to choose to intentionally conceal the truth from adoptees, and when confronted by an adoptee, the typical response is often that we are bitter and ungrateful. And the reason that I know this to be true is that I have an email from the Holt social worker who was working on my case when I was searching for my umma in 2008, in which she let me know how disappointed she was in adoptees like me, who don't get how lucky we were to be adopted, and instead are bitter and ungrateful about our lives, end quote. From the CBC article, Kelly Faustin is quoted as saying, quote, It's not that I don't have a good life here. It's nothing to do with that, Faustin explained. My heart aches wanting to know something that I feel is so close in reach, end quote. So that was kind of a heavier episode. <laughs> But I think it was really important and really sort of paints a picture about how the Korean adoption industry affected people's real lives. You know, you just think an adoption story is over once a baby or a young child or a young person is adopted out and now they live with their adoptive parents and everything's just like fine. But as was alluded to, sometimes adoptive families aren't fine. I'm not saying that biological families are automatically always better. But I think it's just this like lack of knowing along with falsehoods and corruption and the money transferring and transactional nature of some of these cases. It's just a lot to take in. And I'm definitely going to continue to follow what the Truth and Reconciliation Committee for these adoptees comes up with in their investigation and what they say and what happens. It will probably be years or something before anything really solid if anything really solid comes out from it, because it just sounds like we kind of pretty much know what was going on, which is that people were trying to make money off of these adoptions and 
like one of the articles stated, trying to foster relations with Western countries was like kind of the goal and why the government was so invested in doing this. I don't know. But definitely check out the book Palimpsest, Documents from a Korean Adoption by Lisa Ulim Hoblum. I found it really enlightening and interesting, and it's really even more fascinating to hear an adoptee's personal story like this. So I'm really grateful to her for sharing this and letting us know her true feelings about everything, even if they weren't always like the happiest feelings. Special thanks to V for additional research. Special thanks to AO for designing the blog. Special thanks to Emma Rouge for the podcast cover art. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please tell a friend about this podcast. Okay, thanks. Bye.